Welcome to Oikos. I'm glad that you're here. Are you, got, are you glad that you're here? Yes. Awesome. We are winding down this series called Duty. We're in the last two parts. This first part is called to defend. Sometimes when we are faced to explain our faith, people will begin an attack against us. And this is where we find Paul. So if you've been tracking with the story, Paul was last week... He had entered Jerusalem, even though the prophets had told him, do not go. He said, I must go, even if it means I'm going to die. And we talked about that sometimes, sometimes we are called to do things that even others will tell us, do not do for the Lord. And we're all called to die. And it's kind of a depressing message when you first think about it but we all will die. We can't escape that. But those who die with Jesus know that you don't really die. You live for everlasting. And so the life that we have here, these are the words of Paul, is meaningless compared to the life that you have prepared for me. So Paul enters Jerusalem. The crowd begins to viciously attack him. They're pulling him apart, and the commander, the Roman commander that's right by the fortress in the temple, he comes out of the fortress with his thousand soldiers. He saves Paul. He brings him up, and then Paul says, wait a minute. I want to have a few words. Can I have a few words? He's bold enough to say, I've got to speak because the Lord has put me in a position to actually speak to the people who are trying to kill me. And so he begins his defense. Our defense of our faith always begins with our identity, who we are. So you never begin your defense by saying that they're wrong. Instead, you begin with who you are. It's answering not only who we are, but also whose we are. Not only who we are, but whose we are. We're in Acts chapter 22, and we're going to start in verse 1. Brothers and esteemed fathers, Paul said, listen to me as I offer my defense. When they heard him speaking in their own language, the silence was even greater. Now remember, just moments before this, they were trying to tear him apart with their words and their actions. And in just a few words, silence. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, a city in Cilicia, and I was brought up and educated here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. As a student, I was carefully trained in our Jewish laws and customs. I became very zealous and to honor God in everything I did, just like all of you today. So Paul starts out really by just reminding the crowd, I'm like you. So if you twist this up and you put it into modern day, it would be me speaking to you all and saying, I'm like you. I speak your language. I was educated in the public system. I'm just like you. I work. I have kids. I have a wife. I'm like you. You're looking for the points 
that are similar so that your lives, they can begin to see that you're parallel. And this is his identity. He's not trying to say someone else. This is who he is. These stories converge, but in a moment we're going to see that they actually begin to diverge, to separate. Because Paul is going to start to tell them that though we are the same, God has now made me different. My identity has been reclaimed. It's been renewed. It's been reformed. So I am a Jew, just like you. But let me tell you, God's done something even more. And he's inviting you into that as well. He gives them some of his credentials. You might have kind of heard that. I studied under this Gamaliel. This guy, he was, as far as teachers, if you wanted to have a Hebrew professor or you wanted to have a rabbi, Gamaliel was like at the top. At this day and age, no one else would have been better than him. He was seen as a brilliant teacher. Brilliant. But there's something else about him. He also was very kind. He was generous. He was patient. And he was tolerant. What often happens when you have a great teacher and you're too immature in your character is that you get all the knowledge, but you forget to follow their ways. And so he knew all the great stuff. He could spout off anything in Hebrew of theological content. But like many others, Paul fell into the same trap. That he began to lord it over on others. He began to say, I'm going to viciously attack anyone who doesn't do this. Because Gamaliel told me this is the proper way of following God, so if they don't do this, the best thing to do is just kill them. Imprison them. Put them in chains. So what is actually happening here, it's interesting because as he's listing out his credentials, if you didn't know about Gamaliel, you may have thought, Paul's just kind of talking about himself like, ooh, I'm, I studied under this great teacher and, you know, listen to me. But what he's actually doing is he's entering a time of confession before this large crowd. He's entering a time of confession because what he's saying is, I studied under Gamaliel, but I didn't follow his ways. I wasn't patient. I wasn't tolerant. I did the wrong things under this great teacher. He knew that he had become very brash and reactive rather than following the ways of Gamaliel. And so he continues in verse 4. And so I persecuted the followers of the way, hounding some to death. Here's his confession. I'm a murderer. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. The high priest and the whole council of elders can testify that this is so. It's not even an argue, a place to argue with Paul. 
because all these witnesses can say that this is exactly what he did. For I received letters from them to our Jewish brothers in Damascus, authorizing me to bring the followers of the way from there to Jerusalem in chains to be punished. He lays it out. This is what I did. This is who I was. This was my identity. But then something happened. This is in verse 6. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light, but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and, get, and go into Damascus, and there you will be told everything you are to do. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by, the, by hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight. And at that very moment, I could see him. Then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. What are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Have your sins washed away by calling on the name of the Lord. What happened to Paul here is what we would say is a significant event, right? Being blinded by a bright light and then regaining your sight is pretty significant. And we know that he was truly blinded because his companions witnessed this. Though they didn't understand it, they witnessed that he was blinded. Because we'll see that though they saw the light, they didn't understand the words. So they just took him to where he said, we need to go. They followed because this was Saul. He'd studied under Gamil. Of course he knows what he's doing. So they followed him. The significant event is what we call in our language here at Oikos, a Kairos event. A Kairos. It means that something beyond your control has happened where God has interrupted your life and made himself known and is asking you to follow. Now, this may mean that you need to change something. This may mean that you need to embrace your identity more as his son or daughter of God. This may mean, like for, for Saul at this time, that you completely give up your identity and walk into a new identity with him as a son. Rather than an enemy of God, you become a friend of God. This significant thing that happened for Paul changed the world because Paul followed every, every word of Christ so that the nations would come to know who Jesus was. When God breaks into our own lives, 
you should always expect that there's something big about to happen. Maybe in your family, maybe in your friends, it may be with yourself, but often it's going to be much bigger than what you expect. For Paul, the friends that he had around him, though they didn't really understand, they still stuck by him. We don't have any record of what happened to these companions. We don't know if they became followers of the way as well, or after they dropped him off at Ananias, if they just said, you're kind of crazy, and we're going to go our own way now. But God still broke into their lives because he broke into the life of Paul. And it changed him forever. So the question for you guys is, what kairos has happened in your life lately? Where has God broke into your life? If you think you have something that he's done in this last week, just go ahead and raise your hand. I want you guys, keep them up high. Just look around at who believed that God broke in somehow this week. You're wondering how long do I have to keep my hand up, right? Go ahead and put them down. About half of you, that may be a little generous, maybe a little under half, so that God was purposely trying to do something in your life. If you didn't raise your hand, don't worry, you're not a bad, you're not a bad person. What we're going to look at today is we're going to say, Lord, we know that you want to break into our life because you want us to be with you. You want us to represent you. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, I can guarantee you that he is trying to break in right now. And he's either trying to do so so that you can represent him in your workplace or your home or your friends or your family, or he is trying to reclaim you because you've kind of strayed. I shared with some friends this last week on a conference call about a kairos that I felt had happened, not to me in particular, but for our church, for Oikos. Because sometimes the kairos isn't just for an individual, it may be for an entire corporate entity, a family, a whole family. That you start to see that you change the way you act to represent God more fully. And I believe it was a pretty huge kairos that we walked into and we didn't even realize it was happening. Some of you experienced it because you were here that day. But maybe you were like Paul's companions and you didn't realize that it's happening. Some of you may have experienced it and he said, you'll hear this story and you'll go, absolutely. That was huge and that was profound. That was a big day for me as well. And others, you may not have been here. And that's why we're going to tell the story again. Because I think through telling the stories of what God has done, just like Paul, we express a little bit of our identity of who he's making us to be. And that's our greatest defense. So this event that happened was just a few months ago. 
probably more than a few months ago because sometimes my time frames are off. But a few months ago when we had our family on mission workshop, the people who led that were Mike and Sally Brain. Some of you participated, some of you did not, but they were here. And I'll tell you, the Kairos didn't happen because we had the workshop. It wasn't in the workshop time. That was good. That was awesome. I loved it. I loved the people that participated. And maybe for some of you that participated, that was a Kairos. In fact, I think one of you, I know it was. But that wasn't the one I saw for Oikos. It actually happened after the conference when we had Mike Brain preach. Who was here for that? You guys? Okay. And while he was preaching, I think he did an exercise with us that profoundly changed who we are. He told a story about a visit that he had in Africa, and I think it was Nigeria where he's at, where he was invited to speak to these people. And when he got to the place, this place was huge, like football field or larger size of a tent. And tens of thousands of people were gathering in this place. And that's not a hyperbole there. Tens of thousands were gathering in this place, coming from all the surrounding villages, not necessarily to hear Mike Breen preach because they had no idea who he was. They were there because they wanted to experience the Spirit of God, and some of them needed healing, physical healing, spiritual healing, emotional healing. They were coming for healing. And he said that they began this period of thanksgiving where they just put their hands out and they began to give thanks for everything. They thanked him for this. They began to thank God for the socks that they had, for the clothes they had on their back, for the tent that they were under, for health to be able to walk, to experience this day for the family that had come with them, for the food they got to eat that morning, and for the food that was left over from that morning. They began to thank him for everything. And in the moment of that thankfulness, healing began to erupt in the place. Now, he told more than that story. There were more significant things that happened to him on that journey to Nigeria. But as he told that story, he then invited us as a congregation to do the same thing. And I think with some trepidation, we stood up, we put our hands out, and we vocally began to give thanks. Now, I don't know what happened with you. I did look around. Sometimes pastors are bad that way because we're supposed to be praying, but... We're observing. And I did observe, but then I was like, no, I need to take this time to give thanks. And I saw that people were doing it, and I was like, good, awesome. And I was standing next to Sarah, and I, I think I'll remember this for the rest of my days, unless I have dementia or Alzheimer's or something, I forget. I think I'll have it. I mean, 
who knows what will happen with my brain, but as long as I have my brain, this memory will be in there. Standing next to Sarah, and I started giving thanks. And I'll tell you, at the beginning, I was like, this is almost freaking ridiculous. But I'll do it. Thank you, God, for my socks and for my shoelaces and for my children and for my wife and for the shirt, for the shower this morning, for my coffee that I got, for, the, for this job so that I could buy the coffee. And I started going through this, and in the moment of doing it, I started having tears come down my face. And I looked over at Sarah, and the same thing was happening to her. We weren't asking for any physical healing that day. We weren't asking for a relationship healing. We were good. We weren't asking for an emotional healing of any sort. But something down in here was touched by the Spirit. And I took that with me that week. And I believe the Lord did it specifically to tell me that he was real. Because he's about to send me into a place that I was not prepared for. So a week after that, I was called to go to the hospital and visit someone. And this patient was very sick. They had had an accident. And I didn't know what kind of state they were in. And for whatever reason, I said, Jason, you got to come with me. And so Jason came with me, and we walked up, and we walked in there really thinking this is going to be a normal, like, hospital kind of thing. And some of you may go, well, I don't really know what a hospital kind of thing is, but this is what it is. You go in, you pray, you read a little scripture, you talk to the person, and then you go, I got to go, and then you go. It's a hospital thing. It's a hospital visit. It's like if you're a McDonald's worker, you, you package the burger and you hand it. I hope that doesn't sound too crass, but that's basically for pastors, hospital visits are, this is what you do. You go, you visit, you pray, you leave. And if there's five other people at the hospital that day, you may see them as well. It doesn't mean that there's anything less spiritual about it. It just means you're, just, you're in the mode. You're just doing it. So I was in the mode, I was going to go do this hospital visit, bring Jason along with, because in discipleship we believe you should always have someone with you, so they see what you do. And we walked into the room and I could sense that there was something wrong. That this was going to be different than a normal say a prayer and, and then leave. She was visibly upset. It wasn't that she was near death. But she was visibly upset, which I get upset if I was in the hospital. I don't like hospitals. In case you didn't know that, hospital visits are not the best thing for me. In fact, after I just said this, you're probably going, well, I don't need him to come visit me. <laughs> it's not the number one thing that I like go, ooh, I can't wait to go do at the hospital. Because there's been some things in my life where I've been into the hospital and it's affected me, and it hasn't ever come out. One was with my grandpa. I saw him die in the hospital, and 
it wasn't a pretty sight. Another one was with my two nephews that died in the hospital. One, I was there too late, so I held him after he died. And the other one, I got to be with my sister and brother-in-law while we watched him die. And so going to the hospital, those memories come up just like this. And so it's not the first thing that I want to do, but this was a different circumstance. Death wasn't near, but evil was very present. And she began to spout off everything negative that you could say about our family, about Oikos. That it was stupid. That it was false. And she began vehemently attacking me and the church. And I said, I don't know if I'm ready for this. And I didn't even look at Jason, but I came in next to her bed and I knelt down. And the first image that came to my mind was giving thanks. And I thought, I don't know what to do. This is the closest thing that I've probably seen in demon possession. So, I'm going to give thanks. And so I began to say her name and say, let's, let's be thankful. And there was moaning and, no. Church is awful. You should know what, what, what he says about you. And we began to give thanks for the hospital bed that she was in, for the sheets that were covering her, for the nurses that were caring for her and the doctors. We started going through this, and it, I'm not sure how long it lasted, but Jason later told me that he was in the background praying because he was like, this is... Because <laughs> I didn't know what else to do but just stand there and pray. And I think about five minutes of giving thanks. There was calm. There was calm and there was silence. Great job, tech crew. <laughs> A healing had taken place. I don't know how long it would last, but in that moment for her and for me, God broke into her life. It was a Kairos moment for her. And I believe it was a Kairos moment for Oikos as well. If you've been to our missional communities, we often give thanks. And you may, when you hear us say that, go, oh, geez. Hear Jason and Aaron go again. Can anyone give thanks and please don't ask me to pray? The reason why we do that is because of this kairos. That there's power in giving thanks. Do a study. How many times has God asked us to give thanks in his word? It's a lot. Isaiah 12, 3. 
Give thanks to the Lord. He asks us to give thanks because there's power in his word. There's power in falling into the hands of God and saying, all that I have, all I can do is give thanks to you. If you're a business owner, give thanks for your employees, for all those people, for your clients that walk in. for the healthiness of your life that you're able to even have a business. If you work for someone, give thanks for your boss, even if they're crooked. It'll be amazing what happens to your perspective when you give thanks. I actually, actually believe that as Paul was standing and saying these words, he knew that they would not necessarily be received by them. In fact, it probably would entice them to even more anger. But he had to tell them that this is who I was, but this is who God has made me to be. And so his defense was not about the things that he could give them or how he could calm things down, that he wouldn't enter the temple anymore. Remember, they accused him that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. He didn't say, I won't do that anymore, just calm down. He just simply told them who he was and whose he was and what God had done in him. Now, they didn't necessarily all believe it, but that didn't matter. Because only God knows what, what really happens. You may not believe what I just shared with you at the hospital. You may go, oh, he's, you know, he's one of those pastors. They think everything is spiritual. It could have been just a drug she was on and it wore off later. Seriously, Aaron, calm yourself down. I used to think that way. And I'll tell you, the reason why I'm the pastor that I am today is because Mike Breen, this same guy, who I believe God uses as a prophet to speak into people's lives, just like, are we all prophets? We all have the potential to be a prophet when we speak the words of God. Well, God used Mike to speak over me several years ago, four years ago, to remind me that Leading a church isn't something that you do. Leading a church is something that you're called into. And you only do it because God's called you to do it. My mind had been so pushed on, I have to be, I have to preach the best message every week because if it's a kind of a bad one, less people will come the next week. I had to be careful that I wouldn't say certain things because what if I offend somebody and then they don't come back next week because it's all about how many people that we, we get here. And I totally lost sight of God's command to make disciples.
And when he spoke over me and he said a prayer, again, and for those of you that know me, I'm not a big crier. Has anyone seen me cry? See any hands? Sarah's seen me cry a few times. But in the moment that he prayed over me, I, I was crying. I was weeping like a baby. Because the Spirit of the Lord had an effect on my heart. And reminded me that the stuff that I was doing was not for him, it was all for me. And that if I wanted to be his servant, I needed to have a renewal in my own life, and my own spirit, so I could serve him. That's why Oikos is moving forward. It's because God changed me and said, lead differently. That's why we are this way, because he's called you into something bigger than yourselves. That's why I have conversations with people, and some of you go, is he really going to say that to me? That is so offensive. It's not meant to offend, it's meant to call you in deeper. Because God has a huge plan out there, and we are just stepping into it. Paul continues with the plan that the Lord had for him in verse 17. After I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple and I fell into a trance. I saw a vision of Jesus saying to me, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. But Lord, I argued, they certainly know that in every synagogue, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And I was in complete agreement when your witness Stephen was killed. I stood by and kept the coats they took off when they stoned him. But the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul starts his defense with his identity. He shares how the Lord broke into his life and the change it brought into his life. He defends the faith by simply sharing Jesus and what Jesus has done. That's all he does. So the first part of defending the faith is simply sharing Jesus. Sharing Jesus and what he's done in your life. You may think you have an uninteresting story, but let me tell you it's not. Because everyone that is saved from the enemy has a wonderful and beautiful story to share. If you were baptized as a baby and your family's always been Christians, and you go, my story is boring, no, it's this beautiful story of families of generation of generation saying, we follow Jesus. What a legacy that is. If you are newly following Jesus and you go, my story's too ugly to share, no. Paul shares the most ugly story, one of a murderer, one who wanted to defeat Jesus on every angle. And yet God uses this story to change the lives of millions. If you think you have a worthless story, God says it's a, a story that's beyond your knowledge of worth. Because he thinks you are worthy to be saved. Don't forget your story. 
It's where defending the gospel starts. Because the gospel has started in you. I'm thankful that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm thankful that he has done a great work in the lives of us as a church. I'm thankful that he has called us worthy to follow. And that he has given his power and authority to each of us to change the lives of many. So I pray as we end the message today that you will identify a kairos in your life where God is trying to break in and that you'll stop long enough to actually ask him, Lord, what are you trying to do in my life right now so that I can serve you completely, so I can put myself aside and completely receive my identity as your son or daughter today. Jesus says, the first shall be last, but we're all called to serve. We will not serve well if we don't serve within our identity as his son or daughter. We will end up serving ourselves. So we're going to end today because I think some of us in here need healing either spiritual or relational, or there's something that you're not even aware of and you need the Spirit of the Lord to touch your heart. So if you'll stand, we're just going to repeat the exercise of giving thanks. So you put your hands out. And as we begin this process, all you're doing is saying it out loud and saying, Lord, thank you. And I'll start us, but just begin. You don't have to wait for your neighbor to say something and wait for a pause. This is all together in unity as a church. This morning, we're giving thanks to our Father in heaven, to Jesus, our Savior, to the Spirit who leads us right now. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the things that you've given us. I thank you that you've given me a family. That you sent Sarah into my life. That you blessed us with children. Thank you for the socks on my feet. For the shoes that I bought yesterday. For my kids. Thank you that they have a school. Thank you for the teachers in that school. And thank you for Principal Day and the way that he cares for his staff and for my wife. Thank you for my parents. for my sister, for my two half-brothers and my half-sister that I really don't know. Thank you for my friend Michael. For air conditioning. for the car that we were able to use today to drive over here. 
Thank you for all the kids that are in here. For our move and for a place to be. Thank you, Lord, for accepting us for who we are, for loving us before we become the best, for calling us into something greater than ourselves, for placing us here this morning to receive your word and to respond. And most of all, for your son. You died so that we could have life in you. Thank you for the trepidation that we have in our hearts to say things out loud. <coughs> Give us courage, Lord, as we walk with you. In your name we pray. Amen.